and today i have a very very special guest for you i grew up in temples i spent a lot of time in temples but i was actually locked inside the temples because i would be inside the temple and they would lock it outside so i spent a long time um, looking at each and every statue and the carvings in front of some statues the devotees would clap right now you're full time into researching the temples is it so i went to the us around 2001 and i was there for 15 years just come back permanently to india what is the philosophy behind temple architecture um, mostly it's considered as a almost as a place of business because you have to go through all those basic levels when you're a child but the temples were not built just as a place of worship but the temples also are different in south india what we call the the temple is is built similar to a human body the human body is said to have seven chakras and When we go to the Qutub Minar complex, you see this tall tower. That is the Qutub Minar tower. There is no doubt that those structures are all Hindu structures. You would have to be blind to say that they are Islamic structures, because if you look at the tower of Qutub Minar, you will see carvings of bells. Bells are actually banned in Islam. Um, Taj Mahal is full of mysteries. when you take one of the stones if you take any stone in the temple and if you put it in water it will float it's shocking but when i went to cambodia this is in a very remote place called phnom kulen um we don't know how they carved under water in cambodia most people don't know about this they are finding ruins hindu ruins that are more than 2000 years old we have an even older pyramid in india and on top at one point in time they had a huge crystal lingam on top of the kokar pyramid they found uh, evidence of people like homo floresiensis in indonesia We do see carvings of guns in ancient temples. There are carvings which actually show a grenade. They actually found 1000-year-old grenades, not carvings.
नमस्ते आई एम संजय दीक्षित एंड यू आर वॉचिंग दी जयपुर डायलॉग्स एंड टुडे आई हैव अ वेरी वेरी स्पेशल गेस्ट फॉर यू एंड ही इज गोइंग टू टॉक अबाउट यू गेस्ट राइट टेम्पल्स एंड हु दैट कैन बी दी वन एंड ओनली प्रवीण मोहन वेलकम प्रवीण जी वेलकम टू दी जयपुर डायलॉग्स थैंक यू फॉर जस्ट वॉन्ट टू नो what evoked your interest in the temples and the temple architecture and the temple stories and the carvings i grew up watching you know um i grew up in temples i spent a lot of time in temples and uh, as a child i used to walk around all these carvings and statues uh talking to them i saw oh. <laughs> yeah um because the temples usually in, uh, in tamil nadu the temples usually closed around 12 o'clock in the noon and then they reopened the temples around 5 o'clock in the evening but i was actually locked inside the temples because i would be inside the temple and they would lock it outside so i spent a long time um looking at each and every statue and the carvings and also observed the people um how they prayed to each statue and every statue has its own little twist in it in um, some statue in front of some statues the devotees would clap uh, this uh, statue is called chandike chandikeswara um in front of the nine statues or navagraha they would circle around in front of other statues they would do different things so i wanted to understand what was the meaning behind them so i spent a lot of my childhood um thinking about the temples uh, the statues and the meaning behind them so eventually i guess when i grew up i realized that okay um let me try to find out what i really can is this just a meaningless set of rituals as some people would like to say or does it really have deep meaning you know behind all these rituals and statues okay and then you went away to the united states for some time and then right now you're full time into researching the temples is it yeah so i went to the us around 2001 and i was there for 15 years so only in 2015 um i came back i mean i started very slowly i used to come back in the 2010 Uh, i will take a month off and i will say let me go to elora caves or let me go to brahadeeswara temple but as i looked more and more into these temples i kind of became addicted to the temples it's very hard because i was not myself when i went back to the us so i started to go back to the us because you know i was there but then i would keep thinking about the temples in india so the next year i took two months off the next year i took three months off like that so eventually it became time for me to um just come back permanently to india because the temples have some kind of a force that's going to pull you towards them i mean they have so many details that uh, you know it's it has a magical effect on you You're quite right and as you said that a lot of people think that it's a place for doing meaningless rituals what is the 
philosophy behind temple architecture? Um, today, is, if we um, say let's build a temple, um, mostly it's considered as a almost as a place of business, right? They they would find a location in a prime area. They would say, how many people worship Shiva? Let's put a Shiva statue there. Um, and they will put a huge donation box, a hundi, in a prominent place. Uh, so it's treated as a business where people can come, basically pray to God and give their money away. This is the, uh, the mindset that we have today. Uh, but when we look at ancient temples, we realize that something is not quite right. When we actually go into ancient temples, you see carvings and things that don't belong there. You see a bunch of different animals. You see people wrestling. You see people singing and dancing. You see carvings of a variety of things that don't belong there. So it turns out that we have a system, or we had an ancient system. Uh, when the builders were building the temples, they had something else in mind. Um, when you look at the bottom of the temples, you'll always find animals. And you will find many interesting details about animals. You will see um, a baby elephant drinking milk from its mother. It, this is not the sight that anybody could see in real life. Um, so imagine if you're a five-year-old child going into a temple. You would be this high, and then you would only look at those carvings. Okay. And okay. what is a five-year-old interested in? If you have a five-year-old child, then that, that kid is only interested in watching Animal Planet because the kids are naturally attracted to animals. So they put all the animal carvings for the kids at the bottom level. And then there is another level which I say this is suitable for uh, uh, kids from six to 10-year-old. And then it only has uh, dancing, singing and all the fun activities like tug of war and all those interesting things. And above that you have uh, science, like you will see sundials there, you will see various types of knots there. And between 15 to 20 year old you will see carvings about war. You will actually see war, uh, politics, you'll see administration, you'll see how people are punished, you will see all, all those things. And above that level, you'll see, and this is uh, what I say, this is suitable for age group between 20 and 25, you'll see erotica. You'll see various forms of lovemaking. Only above this level, you start to see gods. Only. Okay. Yes. Okay. So, so that's a happy uh, evolutionary kind of uh, setup. Yeah. Yes, it be because you have to go through all those basic levels when you're a child, you're only interested in all these animals. And then when you keep growing up, you have this natural pro process of, I'm interested in social things, I'm interested in dancing, and I'm interested in science. But only when you reach a certain level, then your mind becomes open to the gods. But the temples were not built just as a place of worship. They were built almost as a Wikipedia or like a town museum where you can learn about everything, where you can learn about all the animals. You will see amazing information about animals. You will see a goat, uh, you will see a monkey riding on a goat, like how a man rides on a horse. Actually, monkeys do that. 
Okay. Monkeys actually do this. If a monkey spots a goat, it'll just jump on the goat and go for some distance. We don't know this in real life, but this is carved in ancient temples. So the temples are a great source of all kinds of information. That's why we find everything in the temples. I think this is the purpose of every ancient temple, and this is why they're full of these rich carvings, you know? But the temples also are different in South India, what we call the Dravidian style, and what we have uh, uh, north of the Vindhyas, which is called the Nagara style. Yes. What is that difference? I think but there are many such differences, actually, um, largely depends on how they wanted to build it. Whenever they built a particular style, obviously every style would have had its own advantages and disadvantages. Um, and then it also depends on the place, how the soil condition was. If the soil condition was suitable for a pyramid-like structure, they built a pyramid-like structure. If the soil was rather loose and it would not take a long pyramid-like structure, they built a, a flat structure. So it was more pragmatic than all these styles. And then they also combined the Dravida and Nagara. It's called the Vesra. You can see this in some parts where they combine both of them. And they tried, they tried to do many innovations uh, in many, many types of um, Architecture, we can see the monolithic architecture like the Kailasa temple. Kailasa temple. Yeah. That's a real wonder of the world. Yes, it? it is. Absolutely. I myself have written a number of times about it that uh, oh. Taj Mahal <laughs> cannot lift a finger to it. Yeah. Yeah. That is the kind of uh, monumental architecture it is. Uh, talking about the temples and how the temples are laid out. There is also this uh, alignment between the chakras and the way the temples are laid out from the, uh, mm, from the place you enter and to the uh, Garbhagraha. Mm -hmm. so, uh, have you uh, seen this in most of the temples? You can, um, if you put a, um, a man uh, in a lying position, and then if you put a temple or a temple's plan nearby, you can see that it also has seven chakras or seven mandaps. The temple is, is built similar to a human body. The human body is said to have seven chakras. And when you look at, the, at an ancient temple, um, I don't know if it's still used in the newer temples, but if you look at the ancient temple, you will see that there are mandaps matching those chakras. At this point, the way we have understood this is very primitive, I will say, because we don't understand many of uh, the reasons behind the temple construction. Uh, in, in my opinion, I could be wrong. Uh, in, in my opinion, because what, what I would like to do is that I would like to take 100 people, right, and not tell them, and before they enter the temple, I would like to check their blood pressure. Okay. And I, I wouldn't tell them why. I would just tell them it's a regular medical checkup. I would just check their blood pressure and let them go to the temple and go into the Garbhagraha. And as soon as they come out of the Garbhagraha, I want to check their blood pressure again to see if it, if it has an effect on them. And I would think there is a very good chance that 
the temples have a positive effect on the human mind and the body. And I think this is true, even if you're not a devout person, even if you're a visitor coming from Australia, you're just like, you're just a visitor to the temple. I think the temple was designed in a certain way that it will have a positive effect on your mind and body. I think it should work for atheists also because there is something in that architecture they've done. I don't know if you notice this, the carvings will only be found outside on the outer wall of the temple. But once we go into the, uh, just before the Garbhagriha, there is one more chamber. As soon as we go into the chamber, there is nothing. It's completely empty. It will be completely blank. And then inside, outside they will have a lot of metal um, statues and all that stuff. But inside you'll only have one very simple stone statue. And that stone statue will not be made of granite. It's not a regular granite statue. They, they make it out of a special stone. So I think there is some, I don't know if it's related to magnetism, I don't know what they were trying to do. But I think they were trying to heal us when we, when we go to the temples. I think when we go to the temples, uh, you can literally test this. You can have all sorts of negative emotions. You may, you may want to fight with somebody or angry on somebody. But once you go to the temple, when you come back, you realize that you're coming out with a positive vibration. Yes, I was listening to a talk today by Swami Sarvapriyananda and he was explaining something similar about the koshas, the five koshas. Mm -hmm. And he says that, okay, these are the sheets that you keep removing one sheet. You first you go to the uh, Annamaya kosha, then to the go deeper into Pranamaya kosha, then into the mind, the Manomaya kosha, and then you go to the Vijnanamaya kosha, the intellect. Then you go into the Anandamaya coach, the bliss, and then, then you go uh, further, you find there's nothing. <laughs> oh. So uh, I think you can relate it to this, uh, this way, uh, something like that. Uh, and uh, what you said is very interesting also because there is an evolution top to bottom, as you said, and there's an evolution from entry to the Garbhure. So both ways, it is an evolutionary cycle. That's uh, wonderful. And also the temple, it represents the cosmic order, I guess, the rhythm, and um, the infinite life cycles, what yes. we call oh. the, the Kala Chakra. Yes. So all that uh, comes into it. And uh, of course, you've seen many such temples, but there are also some unique ones which I think you've talked about, like the Kotab Minar. Oh, the Kotab that's, Minar. That's, that's not the, <laughs> the, the typical temple which you can relate to a lying body or a, an evolution from animals to the gods. How do you look at Kotab Minar as a temple? It's a good... That's... Um, see, there are... This is a very... Uh, um, where do you start about this question, right? How do you start with Kudubinar? Because if you open the history books today, right, what do we read about Kudubinar, right? Kudubinar is the oldest Islamic structure in India. This, I, is, oh, oh. <laughs> this is starting from the sixth grade history books 
all the way to PhD level books, But when right? you put a drone on top, you find something totally different. Yes, yes. So um, uh, there, are, there are two parts of this question, right? One is the structure surrounding the Qutub Minar. When we go to the Qutub Minar complex, you see this tall tower, that is the Qutub Minar tower, and then there is a, there is a bunch of uh, structures surrounding the Qutub Minar. There is no doubt that those structures are all Hindu structures. Because when we go there, you, could, you, know, you would have to be blind to say that they're Islamic structures. Because you can see Ganesha, you can see Rama. In my YouTube channel, I kind of show them step by step how they took these Hindu temples and they converted them into Islamic monuments just by putting a dome. And they were in a rush when they, when they invaded. They did not care, like they were in a rush. They did not even deface all the carvings. You can still go and see the carvings of Ramayana in the Qutub Minar complex. So there is no doubt that that structure, the surrounding structure is a, is a Hindu complex. But the main structure, the Qutub Minar tower, this is the part that no historian or no archeologist even wants to open this debate because they've printed in all the books that Qutub Minar is, a, is not only a Muslim structure, it's the first Islamic, Islamic structure, structure in, in India. So if they open this for debate, then they have to reprint everything, right? But it has many problems, actually, because if you look at the Tower of Qutub Minar, you will see carvings of bells all over the Qutub Minar. And bells are actually banned in Islam. Oh, and, yeah. Yes. Bells are uh, Satan's instrument. Yes. Yes, according to Prophet Muhammad, he actually says bells are the instruments of Satan, so we cannot put bells. And then Qutub Minar was built by Qutbuddin Aybak, according to the books. But his name is not even written once anywhere in the, in the structure. Okay, And then um, another important thing is Qutbuddin uh, Aybak only ruled Delhi for four years. Exactly. And how could he build the, at that time, it was Asia's tallest tower. Right. He, he actually lived in Lahore. So how could he build Asia's tallest tower at that time? So when we raise these questions, sometimes historians be like, no, no, that's not how it's built. Qutub Minar was the, the only, the first one or two stories was built by Qutbuddin, and then later the kings kept on building. But this is, this is a stupid theory, in my opinion, because can we build a Qutub Minar on top of this building? No, because we have to start with the foundation, foundation right? Exactly. When you, when exactly. you build the world's tall, or Asia's tallest tower, first you have to start with the foundation and then dig really deep. Otherwise, the structure will not be standing there. Um, in, in my opinion, and, and I think most people are getting to really be aware of this. I mean, let's be honest, right? Why would they build a, a lot of Hindu structures around and then leave a space so invaders could come and build an Islamic structure in the, in the middle? It makes no sense. It only makes sense that the entire complex was a Hindu structure. Um, but if they allow us to go inside, if they allow us to go, because now it's completely locked, if they allow us to go inside Qutub Minar and then use drone and examine inside Qutub Minar, I think we can prove this beyond any doubt that Qutub Minar is also a Hindu structure. Also, the, the drones that have flown over it and they have brought uh, 
a lot of pictures which are there available even on Google are seen. Even I did a show on Qutub Minar. That looks like a sundial from the top. Oh. Why would the Islamic structure be designed like a sundial? They, in any case, they treat uh, time as a linear quantity and they think that time is finite. So they are not going to design it like that. And I haven't seen a single Islamic structure which has got done sundial. Moreover, there is also this theory which says that the entrance to the Qutb Minar is aligned north-south. So how can that be in an Islamic structure? I think they're very particular about the en entrance. Yeah. It's always, uh, I think it's always on the eastern side. And yes. the wall is facing, uh, ultimately, the uh, west side, Kaaba facing wall. Yes. So that's uh, another point. And uh, you've also investigated Taj Mahal, haven't you? <laughs> yes. Uh, we were, I mean, of course, um, a lot of, uh, because they're making some changes now. After a bunch of videos came out, there are some, um, Taj Mahal is full of mysteries. Taj Mahal, where, where do you start with Taj Mahal? Taj Mahal um, has an underground area and I think it has dual underground areas. Um, there were some people who went um, through, uh, they were just taking a boat uh, in the river Yamuna and they spotted some uh, entrances in the basement and they took pictures of this. I think this was an American engineer who did this maybe 30 years ago. Uh, and then they immediately kind of laid the bricks and closed that structure. We can still see the pictures of, uh, of those things. Um, Taj Mahal is a very, and um, there is a book, what's that, I think the name of the book is called Badsha Nama. Yeah. Um, yeah. This text talks about how uh, Shah Jahan actually starts. And then it's clearly said that there was once a structure in that place and this uh, structure was uh, built by Maharaja of... Uh, Jaisingh. Uh, yes, yes. And it's, it's very clear. So there they must have been something underneath. Um, now they're trying to open it. I haven't uh, checked the developments of this. But I'm sure, you know, it, it probably has many hidden structures underneath. Quite right. Uh, so Praveen, uh, let me come to the construction part of... Uh, these temples. We have seen uh, dugout temples like uh, the Kailasa temples and we have seen the built up temples like the Brihadishwar temple. Around 1000 years, 1500 years back these temples have been built. So did they have advanced technology? How did they do it? And you have a, a showcase temples like the Chennakeshwar temples where we see wonderfully polished, almost uh, lathe-machined structures. Yeah. So how did they do it at that time? The standard theory that we talk about uh, is that um, whether it's a smaller uh, temple or a large temple, is that no, people took these chisels and hammers and then they worked on this like for long hours, right? This is the uh, the theory that we have. Even worse, sometimes even textbooks say, no, they employed slaves. And then they <laughs> they had oh. to make these temples <laughs> and pull oh. these. Where would they get such skills? <laughs> yeah, they, they, they made the people pull these granite blocks and all that stuff. The basic idea that's peddled in history books and archaeology books is that they were just using a lot of uh, force and time 
using simple tools. But when we look at specific temples, like the Hoysalaisura temple, like Chennakeshava temple, we can see pillars uh, that can be made only using lathe technology. You, this, it's impossible to make them with chisels and hammers. There's no way. You need a rotating mechanism. It's like a pot. If you see a pot that's made with just hands, you will know that it's not a regular pot. You can only make a pot using a potter's wheel because it has those turn marks. So we know that they were employing lathe machine at least a thousand years ago. So we know this as a fact. We don't know how they did it. And then if you go to Humpy, you can even see the remnants of a lathe machine. You can actually see some parts of the lathe machine. So they used some kind of a rotating mechanism. Um, in many, many places, you can see carvings of things like concentric gears. Uh, just like how if you open your watch, you will see a bunch of gears. You can see these advanced technology in temples. Um, this is, I mean, I can go, go on for hours. I know. <laughs> because it's, I, there, it's there in your videos, so many places. Yes. They've, they've done some incredible things. Uh, we don't know how they built these temples. We don't know how they were able to do it so fast. And the technology they used, if you go to a temple called Ramapa Temple, um, it looks like a normal temple, but when you take one of the stones, if you take any stone in the temple, and if you put it in water, it will float. It's shocking. Where people are shocked by this. How can the stones of a temple be floating? But we're using the same technology today. These are called AAC blocks. I think autoclaved aerated concrete. They make these light blocks today. It looks like concrete, but if you put it in water, it will float. But why? Because it's good for earthquake proofing. If you use light material to build a structure, this is what they do in Japan now. They use these lightweight stone blocks to build their houses because when there is an earthquake, there is not much damage. And when we go to Ramapa, when you when you go from the outside, you're thinking, oh, Ramapa Temple, this is a nice temple. Okay, this is now recognized as a UNESCO heritage recently. But when you go inside the temple, you will be shocked because the whole place looks kind of jumbled. There was a huge earthquake in that area and everything, all the palaces, all the houses, everything got destroyed. But the temple looked solid from the outside. So they not only knew that this is an earthquake-prone area, right? They built it 850 years ago. So they not only knew, oh, this place is going to be hit by an earthquake. So they also knew how to overcome this by creating lightweight stone blocks and building the temple out of this. So there should be no doubt that ancient builders had very advanced technology. Okay, I don't, in maybe 10, 20 years, I don't think we'll question that ancient builders had advanced technology. I think this is just a, a remnant of these old textbooks that are being given to us, thinking like, oh no, the, you know, the ancient builders were primitive people, you know. Uh, I just keep wondering how anybody could uh, put that block of stone, single block of stone, as the Kalasha on the Brihadishwar temple. <laughs> okay. This is a very, um, the, I don't know how to answer this question, by the way. 
Um, if you guys want to edit this, you guys can edit this. But so uh, in the Bruhadishwara temple, um, the general idea is that there is an 80-ton capstone on top of the, the Bruhadishwara pyramid, right? Actually, I've examined it myself. It's not made of a single stone. Is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's not. But it's so interesting, and, and the idea keeps circulating. Lots of people have said this. Even uh, movie stars have said this. Other people uh, have said this, uh, saying that how did they put a huge stone on top of uh, the Burhadi Surat Temple? They, uh, I think it was a documentary done by BBC saying that, no, they put a, a ramp for like 1.5 to 2 kilometers, and they pushed the 80-ton stone using elephants. 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 Upper ramp. Yes, upper ramp. This is no. This was done like twenty-five, maybe twenty-five years ago. But then I've actually gone up and I've seen it I myself. Mean, the elephants slipping and falling. <laughs> yeah. That would be a disaster. Yeah. But see, the thing is, it's not a single stone. Actually, it's made. It's see the. It's made of a composite stone block, right? And that's how they they did that. So they in. That in, would be even more difficult. <laughs> Maybe, yes. Yes. But this information, um, uh, of course, Brihadiswara is, is an extraordinary temple. And uh, it's, it's, they say it's built in less than six years. Um, all the inscriptions actually say that. Actually, inscriptions say it was started and finished in six years. Uh, it's an extraordinary temple. Um, but um, that capstone is not a single stone. It, the, you can take smaller blocks of stone up there and even construct it if you want. Even look at the lingam there. Oh, yes. yes. It is the largest in the world, it is said. Yes. It, yes, the lingam is very big. Yes. So even to put that lingam there, I think that would be a phenomenal task. Yes. Uh, the way they put the lingam is a, is a big mystery, according to some people. Um, because if you go there, I, I'm not exactly sure, and I could be wrong. I think the lingam is 18 feet tall. And today you'll have people, they use these big um, uh, ladders to do Abhishekam and all that stuff because it's so big. But, and then um, there is a big yoni. This is very big, okay? The, the yoni is so big. But when you go into the temple, you will realize that the main chamber's entrance is smaller than the yoni. Yeah, the yeah, yoni yeah. is bigger. I've been there. I've been there yes, the yoni is bigger. But the entrance to the main chamber is smaller than the yoni. Okay, so imagine that. So, so when you have an entrance to your house, let's say that's five feet, but inside you have a bed that's ten feet wide and ten feet tall. How would you put it? Oh, yes. <laughs> How will you put it inside the bedroom? <laughs> Maybe they constructed that around the um, structure much later. So a lot of people actually think this, actually think that, no, the lingam and the yoni was put first, and they built the temple around the lingam and yoni. Actually, many people think this. But no, the lingam and yoni are made of separate parts. <laughs> OK. Because that's the, na that's the nature of every lingam. People think that the lingam, because when you go and buy like a crystal lingam or stone lingam, it's made of one stone today. So people don't understand that. But no, ancient uh, builders always made the yoni separately. And the lingam was one cylinder that was 
made separately, and the yoni was made of other parts. They, they took it inside, and they assembled it, like just like how you would assemble your cot or your bed today, right? If, you, if your entrance is only five feet wide, and if you had a huge furniture that's 20 feet wide, you, you would have assembled it, right? You would have taken them piece by piece and assembled it. So a thousand years ago, they used ingenious strategies. They, used, they were just so clever that even today we're discussing them. We don't know, like a person walks in and they say, how can such a big lingam be inside such a small entrance? But they did all these techniques to do these things. Then that's uh, incredible worksmanship. Yes, extraordinary, extraordinary. Today, we, we are mostly we're not understanding them because they just slip through our cracks. They, just, they keep on, it's like a maya. We don't know how they did most of the things because they were just smarter than us. It's like a magician, you know? When you look at a magician, you think this guy is, is a wizard. But he's using techniques to, you know, that's, that's beyond our understanding. And these worksmen, these craftsmen, they all belong to a special community who seemed to be very, very well versed in all our Puranic lore. Yes. And uh, that's how they are able to show all those stories. Yes. Not just in incredible details, but with many nuances. Yes. Yes. Um, all the all the engineers and builders come from uh, one community. They're called Vishwakarma. Right. Um, they come in other smaller names. They're called Kamalar in uh, Tamil Nadu, but they're also Vishwakarma. They're also Vishwakarma. Um, Vishwakarma is the the oldest engineer. Oldest engineer. <laughs> That's right. He's the one who actually Vishwa, right? So he builds the the universe. So he engineers the universe. Uh, it's very interesting. If you go to uh, Modara Sun Temple, you'll see a Vishwakarma. And he's holding a ruler, a scale. Okay. And the scale has markings, just like how we use a scale or a, or a tape today. And the scale has markings. It's a thousand-year-old temple. So the idea that, oh, we got the tapes, we got the scales and rulers from the Western world, this is just a joke. Because how do you build these great temples if you cannot measure, if you don't have measurements, if you, if you cannot calculate the height and the angles? The angles we see in the temples today, insane. You can see protractors in a temple called Raniki Vav, again in Gujarat. Just like how we use the angle finders, they have carved the protractors. Um, so all the measurements, this is all again coming into the Vishwakarma's um, role. Um, uh, uh, if you see the history of India, until just 200, 300 years ago, all the ancient temples were built by these people. I know, and uh, the kind of precision that they have achieved would also indicate that they had a fair, not just fair, a deep knowledge of uh, mathematics. Yes, yes. They, they went beyond, um, because I used to work with them, uh, because I live very close to Mahabalipuram, 
And I used to, there's a huge uh, um, uh, population of stapatis there. They make all these carvings. They make these giant uh, carvings even today. Um, I used to work with them. And then they used to take me uh, to find stones. And they will do something very strange, okay? So they'll be like, now let's go and find a female stone. Okay. <laughs> that's a new, that's kind of a, that's not something that I can understand. But they would understand. They would look at a stone and say, no, this is a, this is a three-linga stone. Or this is a pullinga stone. So they could understand something about the stone. And um, I think this is written in a book called Maya Matam. This is an old uh, text about ancient engineering. Uh, the stones were separated into male, female, and neuters. And they were able to do this. And we don't understand that fully. So they, un one of the biggest differences between today's uh, life and the ancient life was science and spirituality was blended back in the time. Today, when we go and talk about spirituality in a science forum, they, they think something is wrong with you. Same thing when you go to a religious like satsang, if you talk about science, they think something is wrong with you. Today, we have made a division between the two. But 200 years ago, it was all the same. And the Vishwakarma still follow that, still follow. Um, they're very scientific. They're more scientific than I can understand them. Um, but they've also blended their spirituality with this. And that's why they've built these amazing um, structures. Um, if you look at their text, it's very interesting. They say, put a leaf. If you find a water body, and put a leaf in the water body, and check if it moves clockwise. Oh. <laughs> Okay, that's very strange to me because if you take any water body and if you put, uh, I, I'm sure it's clockwise, if it's counterclockwise, forgive me, but that's what they say. You take a moving water like a swirl and then put a leaf and check if it moves clockwise. If it moves anticlockwise, don't build a temple there. I didn't understand. That, that's kind of strange because when we live in the um, northern hemisphere, all water will move only clockwise. I don't know if you know this. If you go and flush your toilet, it'll only go clockwise. But when you go to the southern hemisphere, it'll go anti-clockwise. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Yeah, but why did they say that? I didn't understand. Like, but they must have known some places, right, which had some type of energy where the water moves in the opposite direction, right? Why would they, otherwise, why would they say that? Um, and, uh, and then the commitment to, to building the temples, uh, the commitment to building the temples. They say, go and build a small hut and stay there for six months before you start building the temple. Okay. So all the Vishwakarmas will go there and they will live there for six months. They understand what rocks you find. They understand the soil you find. Uh, they understand, and they say, this is really interesting, because they say, understand the trees. What trees do you have? What birds are coming? You know, so they had a deep understanding. And maybe that's why they were able to build such amazing structures. Today, we, we probably, like, we don't hold a candle to them. Uh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. And you've also been around Southeast Asia and you've uh, searched a lot of underwater lingam. Yes. And uh, also looked at uh, so many Southeast Asian structures. Yes. So how do you relate them to what we have here in India? We have underwater lingams in Karnataka in a place called Sahasralinga. Um, uh, this is in Karnataka. It's, you can drive from Bangalore and you will see uh, water flowing. It's like a river. And uh, when, it's, when the water dries, you can see lots of lingams there. But when I went to Cambodia, this is in a very remote place called Phnom Kulin. There is a, a remote mountain. And then when we went up the mountain, you can see a stream. And then in the stream, in the river, you can see lingams. Uh, today, this mountain is called Phnom Kulin. Back then, the entire mountain was called Mahendra Parvata. Again, a, a very Sanskrit name, I mean, obviously. The place was called Sahasralinga, uh, meaning 1,000 lingam. Um, we don't know how they carved underwater, right? You know, have you ever tried to punch somebody when you're in the swimming pool? And as, as kids, we all try this. As kids, we all try to kick under the water or punch somebody under the water. You cannot do it you, because there's, you cannot put your full force inside the water because, you know, the, the water has that much density. But how did they carve under the water? How did they carve on the riverbeds? Um, the other point is that why did they carve, right? This is the part that we are trying to find out. This is the part that really excites me because why would people go to a remote mountain and then why would they take so much pains to carve lingams underwater, right? This is a new thing. In, in, if you read, let's say, you, you come to my house, right? And I'm drilling in, in, the, in a wall, right? And if you ask me, like, why are you drilling a wall? And if I said, no, it's just a ritual that I have to drill in walls, you would think I'm crazy, right? You'd be like, no, there is a reason why somebody drills a wall. They'd be putting a picture, they would be hanging a painting or something like that. But if you look at all the history and archeology span books, the standard procedure is they were just doing it for rituals. All these hard things, all these impossible things are just put in a basket as meaningless rituals. Because it's very convenient to say, these are superstitious people, they were just constantly building these amazing structures for meaningless rituals. But I don't believe that. Um, if you talk to Cambodians, and Cambodia is very rich now because of the rice fields. Uh, they make a lot of rice now. And when the Hindus entered Cambodia, it was just a forest. There was nothing there. It was just a forest full of trees. Okay? So the, the Hindus cleared the forest and they made these rice fields. But it turns out that the rice did not grow in Cambodia. So they were missing something. They got the water from the mountain and they cleared the land and they were trying to make the rice, but still the rice did not grow. It said that there was something missing in the water. And that's why they made these thousand lingams because Hindus believe that when water flows through lingam, it turns into a magic potion. And this is why we do Abhishekam and we 
take the water from the lingam. So that's why they carved these thousand lingams in the stream, in the riverbed. And that's after the water went through these lingams, then the rice started growing. Okay, <laughs> that's very interesting. So how old do you think uh, Hinduism was in uh, Southeast Asia? The general idea is that, you know, Cholas, especially Rajendra Chola, uh, went to uh, Cambodia, Thailand, Vietnam. Uh, he took a huge navy and he went to these countries and then he converted them into Hindus. And that's when they started to build um, temples like Angkor Wat. This is what most people think. But uh, there is a place called Funan in Cambodia. Most people don't know about this place. Um, they're finding ruins, Hindu ruins, that are more than 2,000 years old. Um, oh. Yes, sometimes they're saying 2,500 years old. There is another place called Angkor Bore. This Angkor Bore is uh, uh, like two hours from the capital, Phnom Penh. Um, it's a rough place, nobody goes there actually. Um, but again, you will find Hindu ruins that are 2,500 years old. Very interesting thing because the oldest ruler mentioned in Cambodian history books um, is not a king, it's a queen called Soma. She's supposed to be the first ruler of Cambodia and her husband's name is Kaundinya. They're both Hindu names. And so you can imagine that if Hinduism existed in Cambodia 2,500 years ago, when did people go from India? So that must have been even before much, that. Much earlier. So how old is Hinduism? So if you look at the history text, they will even say, no, Vedic texts only came like sometimes, you know, like 2,000 years ago. Oh, that's, that's, that's a hogwash. <laughs> yes, but but we we are now finding more and more archaeological evidence in the, in a faraway place like Cambodia. That's two thousand five hundred years old. So Hinduism must have existed thousands of years before that in India. So there is a calculated narrative that's built by historians, right? Because they're trying to say no, no, nothing existed two thousand years ago. That they have to fit everything into the biblical chronology. Yes. Because according to them, the earth came into being only on the 6,000 years ago. 4,004 BCE, yes. the year 4,004 BCE. So they fit everything, retrofit everything into that chronology. But uh, I believe uh, Hindu carvings have been found in South America as well. Yes. Um, I've done two countries, I've explored two countries uh, in South America. One is Peru. Peru is a very popular tourist site. It's known for Machu Picchu. Uh, it's known for places like Ollante, Tambo, big uh, megalithic structures, very large, uh, huge uh, structures. Um, most people know the Inca people of uh, Peru. Um, so what's happening is that you will find um, a lot of similarity between uh, their structures, their beliefs, and Hindu structures and Hindu beliefs. For example, you will see uh, they have snake gods. They call their snake gods as Amaru. This is the same as the Sanskrit word Amar, meaning immortal gods. And their main god is called Virakocha. 
It's very similar, again, to the Sanskrit name. I, I like to say Viragosha because we have Ashwagosha, Buddhagosha, Brahmagosha. And then they, I believe that Viragosha went from here. And that's what their history also says. Um, this Viragosha comes from the sea. So we can see a lot of similarities between um, uh, the culture we have in Peru and the culture we have in India. But nobody goes to Colombia. When I went to Colombia, because uh, Colombia is known for these drug cartels uh, because of Pablo Escobar, I think. I think he is Pablo Escobar. Yeah. Um, nobody went to uh, Colombia because it's like a dark country. But after his time, now it's open for tourists. When we went there, we found amazing similarities to uh, Hindu structures. They have one god who looks like Ganesha. He has a long trunk. And the country doesn't even have any elephants. I don't think South America has any elephants. So how did they carve a statue with a trunk? So when we went into remote parts of Colombia and we talked to the locals, and I have this on tape, the locals say, no, this is a Hindu god. The locals say, they didn't know the name Ganesha, but they say, no, this is a Hindu god. Uh, this is the Hindu elephant god. I've seen this in the movies, and we worship this in Colombia. And uh, we can see Nagas on top of lingams in Colombia. We can see Dwarapalakas guarding the main statue. So we can, and we can also see um, another uh, statue called Swarna Bhairava. He's also known as Vice Ravana. He puts a long cylinder into the ground looking for gold. We can see all these gods in Colombia as well. Uh, now, South America is very far from India, but I think that somehow they're the same culture, they're the same civilization. We just have to understand how we went that far. Right, right. What, what do you think about the pyramids of Egypt? Do they predate Indian temples? The general idea is that, um, of course, Egypt has spectacular temples. I mean, spectacular pyramids, right? Um, um, and they're well-preserved. Uh, the oldest pyramid in Egypt is about 4,600 years ago. This is the pyramid of Saqqara. Um, but we have an even older pyramid in India. This is actually in Bareilly. Okay. <laughs> this is, yeah, this is in a place called Ahishetra in Bareilly. This is a remote place. Mostly nobody goes there. But this is a giant pyramid built at the time of Krishna. So it's built about 5,000 years ago. This is the oldest pyramid uh, that's older than the Egyptian pyramids. Now, if you look at the temples, you can understand that the temples are somewhat of like pyramidal in shape. But when you go to Cambodia, I've seen two proper Hindu pyramids. They're not just like temple shaped. They're two pyramids. One is in a place called Kokur. Uh, it's a giant pyramid. And on top, at one point in time, they had a huge crystal lingam on top of the Kokur pyramid. Okay. Yeah. It's, okay. it's in a forest, and today we call it Kokur. Back then, the original name of Kokur was Lingapura, meaning the, it's the yes, town yes, of yes, lingams. Absolutely, absolutely, right? Yes. And there is another uh, pyramid that is also, now it's called Bakse Chamkrong. This is right next to Angkor Wat. 
This is again a Hindu pyramid uh, built in Angkor Wat. So I think that if we explore enough, we will realize that Hindus built the first pyramids and later Egyptians took it from us. That's great. That's, that's uh, new information that I'm getting. And uh, coming back to the way the temples are constructed, the philosophy behind them. Uh, of course, it's very clear that we have the evolutionary principles built into them very deeply. So obviously they do not believe in creationism. Well, we don't know. I don't know. I don't understand um, if they fully believed in creationism or if they fully believed in evolution. Um, the main um, difference between Hinduism and other religions, like for example, Christianity or Islam, is that they encourage all types of thought process. They encouraged it. Like you can even be an atheist or you, you don't have to go to a temple for 50 years. You can still be a Hindu. You can, you can think in any terms. You can believe in one God. You can believe in 10 gods. You will still be a Hindu. So they kind of encouraged all philosophies. And we should, I personally believe that we should accept all thought process, right? They, all the ideas should be able to come out in public. Um, I think this is the this is the essence of that. Um, so we do see some uh, things like how uh, things were created, but one thing that really interests me about evolution is that there are ten avatars of Vishnu, right? So the first avatar is uh, uh, Matsya or fish. The second avatar is uh, Kurma or or tortoise, uh, or tortoise, which uh, is the turtle, right? Uh, amphibian. <laughs> yeah, amphibian, right? So, and the third one is uh, Varaha, which is a rodent. And the fourth no, one is... not a rodent, it's a boar. Yeah, it's a boar, yeah. Uh, it looks like that. And then Narasimha is like, almost like a lion-like figure. Uh, half, half human. Yes. If, if we take it at face value, it gets very shady. But if you look at it in the overall fashion, the fifth avatar is Vamana, or like a small human. Right, it's very similar to Darwin's evolution theory. Right, yeah. so the world was dominated by fish. Then the fish slowly evolved into amphibians, which is like the turtle, and then they evolved into rodents, then mammals, and then we had small apes. Like uh, they found uh, evidence of uh, people like Homo floresiensis in Indonesia. They were small, little, like human-like figures. So how does that match accurately with these, how do, you know, how do our avatars? Yes, that's, uh, that's an interesting, uh, something interesting to explore further. Yes. Also macroevolution, right? Also just by continuing that, right? What's the sixth avatar, right? That's the Parashuram, Parashuram who's, who's coming with an axe. Then the next one is Rama, who's coming with a bow and arrow. And the next one is Balrama, who's coming with a plow. And the ninth one is Krishna, who's like who's playing the flute and enjoying his life. This and is Sudarshan Chakra as well. Yes, advanced weapon, right? So if you look at this, you can also see microevolution of humans because humans like used to be like Parashuram. They used to just have an axe, like cavemen. Then they started using the bow and arrow because they became hunter-gatherers. 
they went from place to place and because they were hunting and then they started farming they they stopped moving and hunting and then they started agriculture that's the balram with the plow and then krishna shows today's man we're not doing any of that actually we're kind of enjoying but we have advanced weapons like we're we're doing music that type of stuff so there is some symbolism there that right. we haven't fully caught i think we we don't understand it fully but how does it accurately show the macro evolution of animals and the micro evolution of humans in all it takes is just put kurma before matsya right okay. that would have failed right there is no just Fair one time. one change in the order changes that but it accurately fits our evolution model that's very interesting to me right right okay final couple of questions uh, what is the position of women in the temple architectures as you see the the standard idea okay women in ancient india were suppressed they could not come out of the house there was patriarchy it's a male dominated uh, society this is just total nonsense <laughs> in in my opinion i think there's no way because when we enter ancient temples we understand that this is a complete falsehood okay there are more female gods than male gods there are more female carvings than male carvings in any temples and you can see the women right doing all kinds of things you can see women hunting we can see women fighting with swords we can see women riding we can see women reading we can see women um dancing and singing so they were allowed to do whatever they wanted right and then i show specifically in many carvings women play the lead and men worked under the women so the the woman was a supervisor while the man were working at a subordinate position under the woman so it must have been pretty much like today it must have been if you had the talent it did not matter if you are a woman or a man i think in ancient india this was the system that followed okay i i i personally believe that this was the system it was an equal society where women and men were just treated equally and they got their opportunities based on their talent right and you also discovered guns and bombs in the temples yeah i know this is a um we do see carvings of guns in ancient temples i show this in my video um it we are now slowly starting to uncover this information because we can see carvings of people using rifles um not only do the carvings show this we also have texts we have even manusmriti which is two, more than 2000 years old even manusmriti actually talks about guns the guns are called nalikas in ancient texts now this is not only found in indian texts uh, there is a greek philosopher his name is philostratus and he gives a completely new explanation why alexander went back from india okay what's that <laughs> so according to philostratus the greek philosopher alexander's army came to uh, some parts of india 
and he mentions the part, this place is uh, between um, two rivers, uh, river uh, Ganga and Bias. And when Alexander's army came in, the Hindus were just quiet, but the army, when the army came close to the fort, the Hindus attacked them with weapons of lightning and thunderbolt. And the entire army just went back. Philostratus gives a new explanation saying that they were just quiet, but then they hurled thunderbolts and lightnings at us, and this caused great damage. I can only understand that as bombs and gunfire. Right. Okay, and then um, there are carvings which actually show a grenade. Like you have a grenade in one hand, and you can see the pin in the other hand. Um, many people think, because we don't fully understand history, many people think grenades were used maybe 200 years ago or something like this. No, in Jerusalem, they actually found thousand-year-old grenades, not carvings. They found grenades. Actual grenades. Yes, actual grenades, which are thousand years old, okay? If, because they examined the contents inside, and they knew that if that thing was thrown on somebody, it would explode. So we will eventually find that ancient Indians used guns and explosives, right? I mean, we have been celebrating Diwali for how many thousands of years with, with fireworks? It shouldn't be new to us. I think fireworks, understanding gunpowder should be basic. It, it should it should not be something that Europeans or Chinese taught us. Quite right. So my final question, you, you are uh, building a temple museum in Ayodhya, I'm told. So uh, please do tell us a few things about it. I'm not the one who's actually building it, but I'm on the panel to, uh, to help them build a temple museum in Ayodhya. Um, right. In Ayodhya, um, the Indian government is trying to come up with some really big plans. Uh, most people don't know about this, uh, especially the UP government uh, has a vision uh, for Ayodhya. They want to make it into the spiritual capital of the world. They want Ayodhya to be the spiritual capital of not only India, but they want it to be the spiritual capital of the world. Um, so think of it almost like Rome. If you ever go to Rome, you won't stay there for one day. You will go around looking at multiple, multiple uh, places of interest. So they want to build something better than that in Ayodhya. Um, so which is why, of course, the Ram Mandir is there. But when somebody comes from, let's say, Germany or um, Israel or something like that, they won't just come see the Ram Mandir in Ayodhya. So they want to build other structures showing the Hindu revival. They want to build uh, museums, you know, heritage centers, etc. So one thing we're trying to build is a museum of temples. Uh, in this, we want to show all kinds of information about the temples. For example, um, there is this god called Benzaiten in Japan. I don't know if you know about this. Even today in Japan, when before the kids go to uh, write their exam, they will go and like pray to this god called Benzaiten. This is a female god. She's always shown in white dress, and she will be sitting on top of a, a bird. 
This is actually goddess Saraswati. Saraswati. <laughs> it's still popular in, in, in Japan. But we don't know this. In India, there is no, um, we don't actually know this. This knowledge is not there. In China, they worship Hindu gods. In many countries, they worship, they just, it's called Bishumontan. Okay, they worship gods like Gubera. In China and many other countries, they worship Hindu gods. They know that they worship Hindu gods, but we don't know that Chinese and Japanese worship Hindu gods. So we want to put all this information in the museum, you know, to, to see how uh, far Hinduism has reached around the world and what kind of temples were, were built, what are the types of architecture, um, uh, what is the science behind the temples. So the, there's going to be a museum that has all the highlights of Hindu temples. So that's what we're trying to uh, build in Ayodhya. Right, uh, Praveenji, thank you for a wonderful conversation. Uh, I think uh, we've learned more about temples today than uh, we've ever done. And viewers, I'm sure you're gonna find this helpful. And this should actually set you off on a path of discovery and do visit Praveen Mohan's channel. It's I think simply called Praveen Mohan. And you will find videos of such incredible content that you would probably think that uh, there's something that you've missed all your life. So thank you once again, Praveen ji. Thank you for having me. Jai Hind, Vande Matram. <laughs>